Praise the Lord. This morning, my text is found in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 to 19 in the Old Testament. If you don't know where that is, all you've got to do is turn to, 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 to the pages between the Old and New Testament and just go four books back, and you'll find Habakkuk. And so I encourage you to turn there um, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. And, um, and, and before I read that, and, and I want to just tell you that these are great words of hope. Great words of hope that we find in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 19. But we won't understand these verses unless, and you have to get this, unless we see the depth of the despair that faced the prophet, prophet Habakkuk who was writing them. You, then you, you just, you won't understand how, how, how great these words of hope are. And I start, actually, if you're, if you're in your Bible, but in Habakkuk chapter 3, I'll, I'll back up one verse in 16 just to, as a starting point, even though our text really is. And we'll be looking in verses 17 to 19. And Habakkuk says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips, at the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place, I tremble. There's that word again. Because I must wait quietly or patiently for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Oh, Bob, what are you talking about? Where are we going with this? What is the prophet talking about here? Let me just give you a very, very quick background because there's a lot going on here in Israel's history during the time of Habakkuk. And it's not pleasant and it's not all good. See, Habakkuk sees God as a consuming fire. He's pure and he's holy. And we do too. He is a consuming fire. He's pure. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. He doesn't tolerate sin. And in chapter 1 of, these, of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk cries out, and this is what he says, if I could paraphrase. He says, God, why don't you give us justice? Punish all the evildoers. And he's really talking even about his own people who are so steeped in sin, and it's habitual, and they're stuck, and they won't get out of it. They become wicked. And by, by chapter 3 and verse 16, the verse we just read, he sees how enormous, how massive, if I could put it, how, how just huge that punishment would be that God would send. It was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And what does he do in verse 16? He trembles. God was right. He was just in punishing and, and, and ultimately destroying Jerusalem because of the wickedness of his own people. You see, Habakkuk is writing this prophecy that he received from the Lord and this interaction he has with the Lord, this, this complaint to God he had, God, why don't you do something about the wickedness of your people and in the land? And he's, he's writing, he's talking to God, he's complaining to him. And about 18 to 20 years before Jerusalem is destroyed, which was in 586 B.C., by the way, King Nebuchadnezzar, eventually of Babylon, would surround the city and he would besiege it for two years. He would starve the people into submission. Eventually, the king of Judah and his army tried to escape through a hole in the wall at night when they were under this siege, but they were caught and they were 
let's just say they were taken care of, to put it nicely. The Babylonian army then entered the city. They looted, they murdered, they plundered, they destroyed everything in sight and everyone in sight. Wasn't pretty, horrific, scary, evil. And Jeremiah had written about this as well. He was a counterpart. He was, he was working together. They were at the same time, basically, as Habakkuk in Israel's history. And in Lamentations chapter 2, that small little book, in chapter 2, he describes the scene shortly after all this happened. I am not even going to read it because it's horrible. Horrible. And Habakkuk... He had foreseen this event. I know, this all sounds gloomy and terrible, and it is. And I'm not even giving you details. But there is hope. There is light. There is. Habakkuk had foreseen this event. And still, knowing what would happen. Now, I don't know. We don't know historically if Habakkuk survived this, 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 this destruction of Jerusalem or not, if he witnessed it, if he survived, if he ended up dying in it, we don't know for sure historically. But either way, he knew it was coming. And knowing what was coming to his own people and to the nation that he was a part of, he writes verses 17 to 19. This is what he says. Some of you know this by heart, or at least the concepts by heart. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation." The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like the feet of a deer or hind's feet and he makes me walk on my high places. See Habakkuk, in the midst of all this troubling news and knowing what would happen and everything is falling apart around him, this is what he does. Three simple things and they're found right in verse 17, 18, and 19 in our, in our text this morning. Habakkuk starts by declaring this in verse 17. Everything is going wrong. Everything is going wrong. If you want to read about everything else going wrong, read before this. And all the complaints he has in chapter 1 to God as well. Everything is going wrong. Have you ever been in that situation? Have you been in that place? And you really, seriously, sincerely, and even in your spirit, but not just your emotions, in your mind, and not even just the circumstances that are real, but do you feel like everything is going wrong? We've been there. Some of you are there even now. God's people are are sinning in this context here. Right? We may keep that in mind. And God is going to judge them. There is no doubt. And it t- reminds us that, that when everything is going wrong, this is one of the things that the prophet sees as God's mouthpiece. The first thing that's really going wrong is God's people are sinning everywhere. And God doesn't put up with sin forever. 
We talked about this in Sunday school a couple weeks ago. I don't know how long God's patience is, but God's patience, because He's just and He's holy, there was a time of reckoning. Everything gets exposed and God will judge them. Everything's going wrong. In fact, everybody's doing wrong is what Habakkuk is saying. And secondly, everything is going wrong because God, how could this be? You're going to judge and then you tell me If you read chapter 2, you tell me that you're going to use the Babylonians to set us straight. How is that fair? They're worse than we are, and you're going to use them to judge us for all the things that we do wrong. My world's falling apart. How can this be, God? Everything is going wrong. But even more so, he says here, the fig tree isn't blossoming. There's no fruit in the vines. There's no olive that's producing. The fields are, there's no produce. There's no harvest that I can get. There's a flock is cut off. There's no cattle in the stalls. Everything is gone. It's, it's gone. I'm empty. All is lost. It's all going wrong. Remember, the economy of Judah in ancient Israel, right? At this time was based almost exclusively on agriculture and livestock. Not much different than when it was here in the States a couple hundred years ago. Livestock and agriculture, it was all about that. And agriculture could be divided into permanent crops, right? Like fruit trees, olive trees, grapevines. Why? They were perennials, right? They produce every year. No matter what, they're supposed to produce. You could have an off year of how much production there is, but they produce every year, right? They're perennial. You could count on them. And then there are the annual field crops, like wheat, And barley, you got to sow the seed. And then you hope and you wait that something will come up and produce. And according to this verse, verse 17, what parts of this economy have failed? Yeah, everything's going wrong. It's all lost. It's all withering. There's nothing being, being produced. And I've got nothing to gather. All the permanent crops are gone. The annual crops, the staple foods, the source for most of the calorie supply, like the wheat, right, and the barley, they're they're not there. So neither the permanent nor the annual crops have yielded anything. Then the final two items, the flock and the cattle, that is the sheep and the cows, all their livestock are dead. They're empty. It's nothing there. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying, even though I've lost everything, Even though all my, if I could put it in really, because we relate here, even though all my income disappears, that's what he's saying, it's all gone. We might say it this way, when I lose my job and the unemployment insurance runs out, what am I going to do? When I can't work and I'm denied my disability claim, what am I supposed to do? All is lost, it's despair and everything's falling apart in my world. When the bill comes in, but there's no money coming in to the checking account to pay them? What do I do? Where am I supposed to go? It's all falling apart. But here's the truth. We can relate in those terms with our checkbooks and with our finances and paying bills and things like that. And those are important and they're real. But, but really, Habakkuk's situation is worse than anything we can imagine in this country right now. It really is. For in Judah, they don't have, they don't have social services and agencies like we have. 
There, is no, there are no homeless shelters. There are no food stamps. And those all have their place, praise God. And during the destruction of Jerusalem, there are no well-off relatives around. There's no income for Habakkuk. And that means starvation. It means, if there's starvation, it means what? It means, it means death. That's what it means. First for the weakest in the families, and then the old and the young, and then eventually for everyone. And I really do, and I don't mean to minimize any of the things you're going through, but I really doubt that anyone here this morning has ever faced a genuine prospect of having a family member starve to death because of a lack of income. That's what Habakkuk faced. That's what God's people faced, and rightly so, by the way, because God is holy and just. But don't let, don't let the extremity of these circumstances blind you and blind me to the relevance that they have for us today. Another way to think of this verse, which is perhaps, and I guess is easier for us to relate, is to say it this way. In verse 17, you could substitute it and say this. Though it looks like all of God's gifts have been taken from me, all those things I need, all those things that are good, and all the bonuses, and there's nothing left there. All of God's gifts are taken. Everything is going wrong. I've got nothing left. How does Habakkuk respond to this situation? How do you and I respond to this situation? He responds in verse 18. Even though he said... Everything is going wrong. You should also say in the next breath, like Habakkuk did in verse 18, I choose to rejoice. Ooh, that's hard. That's hard. No, it's not. I know what my faith is. I believe in God. It's hard. Don't kid anyone. You're not going to pull anything over on me. That's hard. It's hard. It's not impossible, and it's not something that ought to be, but, but it's hard. There's this key word that everything hinges on here, that no matter what's going on in your life, and you know what? Sometimes the things that go on in our lives like this, it's our fault. It is. It was, the, it was Israel's, in fact, they were guilty. God is just, he's holy, and he kept calling out to them, and they wouldn't change, and everything's falling apart, and here's Habakkuk seeing it all, and he's like, why, God? Why does it have to be this way? Some of the things and the jams that we find ourselves in are self-induced, and they are, we, we're the catalysts. And it's hard. God knows and he sees. And there's this word here. Because Habakkuk is part of his nation. He's part of the whole... Yes, he's God's mouthpiece. He's chosen by God. But he's seeing all this and he's touched by all this. And he, there's one word that hinges on everything and it's this word yet. Yet. In spite of. No matter what. Whatever you want to substitute it with. Yet. 
I will exalt in the Lord. Do you know what that word exalt is? You don't have it in your NIV. You don't have it in more modern translations than the older ones do. That word in the Hebrew means this, that I will be elated and jubilant in the Lord. That's, I'm afraid to say this, but just coming from my own experience with God, right? That's crazy. It is, in the natural. And when our mind takes over and we don't live by the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and when we're not focused on God, remembering who He is, that's crazy to say that I'm going to be jubilant and I'm going to be so, so elated walking around like my world's falling apart, but God, you're awesome, and we're all like, woo You don't have to always be that way, by the way, to have that inside. But that's still crazy because you know what's happening and Habakkuk knew what was coming. It was certain. There was no getting out of it. And yet, he says, yet I choose to rejoice. I will exalt in the Lord. I want you to note something. And there's three things. There's three things that Habakkuk does. He avoids doing three things. He avoids, first of all, lashing out at God in anger. Now, not a philosophical question, but are you allowed to be angry with God? Yes. Yes. Yes, you are. Just don't stay there because that gets you in trouble because you're not God and God is God. That'll get you in trouble. But yes, but he doesn't choose to do that. He didn't lash out and he doesn't say, God, you have no right to destroy your people. Didn't you promise that we're yours and that, that this, and it's an eternal covenant and you're a faithless God? And God says, wait a minute. <laughs> what about your end of the deal? I have every right to do what I'm doing. But he doesn't do that in anger because he knows who God is. He doesn't lash out at God in anger. So, so guard yourself against that. Don't, and if you do, don't stay there. It's okay, but don't, do not stay there because you will end up sinning. Be careful. Secondly, he does not pretend that evil won't happen. Don't pretend that if things are going haywire in your life, that, that evil won't happen because even if you didn't have anything to do with it, even if it's the world around you and it's other people and our, our society, our culture, our world is so sinful and wicked and judgment is coming, don't pretend like it's not coming and don't pretend like it can't come for you if you continue living that way too. He didn't pretend that. He knew it was coming and that God was right in bringing that judgment. He doesn't withdraw into some fantasy world saying, that's too terrible to think about. I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to think of something else and I'm going to escape and go to whatever land I want to in my mind. I'll sit in front of the TV and I'll be distracted for hours on end every day so I don't think about it. No. No, 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 no. He didn't do that. Escapism will not, will not bring you or set you free from God's judgment. And from God doing the right thing according to his character. And thirdly, note carefully, he doesn't say this either. Despite all of this, I'm going to endure. I have such, my faith is so strong. I have willpower. No matter how hard it gets, I want to go through. It's, I want to make it through. I want to stiffen my upper lip. And I want to stick it out. 
I'm going to still wait for the Lord. I'm going to remain faithful and I'm going for it. It's me. I'm going to make it. I'm strong. He doesn't say that. It's, it's, he didn't say, I have the willpower to endure. I'm going to do it. He didn't say that. He didn't do that. Instead, what does he say? He says, I will exult. I will be elated in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. In the Lord, the God who is able to save me because he's personal and involved in my world and he has every right to do what is just. And, 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 and even though I'm part of it I'm, and I'm, I'm going to be affected by it, he is just. He is that personal covenant-keeping God. And I want to rejoice in the God of my salvation. He has the power to save, but he is salvation. I'm going to rejoice in that God who's personal and present in my life. And he's the God of my salvation because he is salvation. Habakkuk not only foresees the possibility that he could lose everything, he foresees the certainty that the world as he knows it and the kingdom of of Israel as he knows it, along with everything and everyone that he loves, it will be ruined and brought down. And in this extremity, he says, not only I won't accuse God of being unfaithful, but I'm going to rejoice in God. How can he say that? And how can he say that? Looking ahead to the terrors of Nebuchadnezzar's siege. You can read about it in in Jeremiah and in Lamentations. How can Habakkuk rejoice in God? And, And he answers and he tells us how he can in verse 19. Very simple. In verse 19 he says, I can do that because God is my strength. I'm not the little engine that could. I'm going to make it no matter what. See, God, I'm good and I'm righteous. I'm going to keep plugging along. No. Everything was based on his relationship to God and his dependence on God, not himself. Not his wisdom. Not the words he got from God. But it was on God. It was the Lord himself. He's going to be elated in him and he's going to rejoice in the God of his salvation. The Lord God is my strength, in verse 19. And he has made my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me walk on my high places. And this verse explains why Habakkuk can rejoice in the midst of this terrible suffering that he foresees. Why does he say that his feet are made like those of a deer? What is implied? What is he, and what is he implying by high places when we read about them when he talks, when he, when, he, when he mentions that? And what does he mean that he makes me to walk? That God makes him to walk in these high places? Well, let's start with, with the idea that he has made his feet like the feet of a deer. If Habakkuk lived in North America, if he lived here, and if he lived especially in the Rocky Mountains, he would have said that he has made my feet like those of mountain goats. I thought of this because I thought of Nate and Sophie when they were in Colorado and they showed me a picture of a mountain goat. Those things are amazing. Those animals are amazing creatures that God made. Why are the goats able to do this in the mountains and in the cliffs? You know what it is? It's all because of their feet. It's all about their feet. I know. Feet aren't the, the, the most favorite topic for a lot of people to talk about, right? But it's all about the feet. For the goats, it's because they have tough, cloven hooves that are actually so strong and they're rough on the edge and they can actually move them. They They can move them in and out to get, believe me, where they separate, 
to get into the tightest spots or to latch onto the smallest rock. And I, that is, that's a fact. It's an incredible thing. These hooves, because they're hardened, because of how they're designed, they aren't hurt by sharp rocks, but they're able to grip even the smallest, tiniest outcrop. It's nothing for them. Think about it. God made them that way. He didn't create humans to climb sheer cliffs, and yet humans do it with two fingers, and they're hanging there on this cliff at Yosemite, hundreds and hundreds of foot down, and they're like, oh, I'm hanging here with two fingers. God didn't even design us for that. He designed goats for that. So can you imagine what they can do and how amazing that design and that, that intentional, intentional engineering that was there, right, by God, for them to go into these places and to, and to climb where they climb. God designed their feet for climbing. They don't slip. They don't fall. Note, that the point is not the power of the sheep, but the design of the sheep's foot. I'm going to say that again. Because we take such pride with our abilities, our giftings, and what we have, and how God's made us in certain ways and in certain circumstances. But listen, the point is not in the power of the sheep, but the design of the sheep's foot. You make my feet like the deer or like the mountain goats in this case to make it relevant to where we are in this part of the world. Habakkuk uses the word for the female deer, not the male, to make this point. The female uh, deer too, as well as the male, is able to climb to the highest heights to run over rocky fields because of her special feet. And so Habakkuk rejoices that his feet are made like deer's feet. Did you know that you have feet like deer's feet? None of you believe it. But God has given us feet like deer's feet. So we can climb in these places. We'll get to that in a moment. Right? And, 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 and they're like mountain goats. And they're designed by God to travel over the most difficult ground. My high places. What does he mean by high places? That I can go and I can tread and go there in high places. And the high places connotes a difficult challenging place. A place one would not want to go unless it is absolutely fill in the blank. Necessary. You know, the mountain goat doesn't always just hang out and live there in the steepest inclines on the edge of the mountain with no space their entire lives. They go there out of necessity to escape the one who is looking to destroy them. Get out of trouble to find refuge and safety, protection. And that, that's what they're designed for. And you go there when things are difficult and it's difficult to get there, but you go there because it prevents the snow leopard in Asia from getting that mountain goat. There's different kinds of mountain goats or antelope throughout the world that do that, right? In the mountains, in the Himalayas, they have their own their own uh, antelope that do that and goats that do that. He makes me and he takes me to my high places. You might climb to a high place to gain defensible ground in a battle, right? Isn't that a good tactic? So, but you only go there if you can't avoid it. And so high places here means a difficult, challenging place. Let me ask you something. Are some of you in a difficult, challenging place right now? 
God's given you feet like mountain goats. And you might think you can't escape, you, you can't find refuge, and you can't climb, and you can't go any higher, but God has given you feet to climb and get there, not in your own power, but it's because He's designed you that way when you're regenerated, and the Holy Spirit lives in you, and He gives you that power, not your strength, His power, to get there in a spiritual sense and find that refuge. He takes you to those high places. And then He says, He makes me. Forget about the high places. He, it, he says that he makes me walk on my high places. It's very personal. It's very personal for him. The NIV translates this, that he enables me to go on the heights. Most English translations use two verbs. The New American Standard says make and walk, right? The NIV says enable and go. But the thing is, in Hebrew, there's only one word. It's just walk. It's just walk. And then there's some, some verbiage and some things with the language that are involved there that really, what this phrase means that we have in English is this. He leads me to these high places. He makes me go there even though I don't want to. I want to read that again. He leads me to these high places. He makes me go there even though I don't want to. Why? Because he's enabled you to with feet like a deer, like the mountain goat, right? And that high place is that difficult, challenging, circumstantial situation you're in, and he leads you there. He's the one that leads you there. He enables you. He makes you go there even though you don't want to because he's with you. Or, as the NIV interprets it, he enables me to walk in places I could not go without his help. These ideas are present here in this text. Habakkuk is not talking about a pleasant afternoon of rock climbing with Sophie in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. I know she's not here, but she loves hiking, and I, I like hiking too. And, and it's not that. Instead, Habakkuk dreads what God has in store for him. He knows the path is very challenging, very dangerous. And in that sense, God is leading him to a place he does not want to go to. And yet God is his strength, and Habakkuk is confident that God will enable him to do what he could never do on his own. And that is why he is joyful. That's why he's joyful. God led him to this very spot. And though there is pain and difficulty there and here, he knows that God will either rescue him from the danger or allow him to die. Now, I'm not here to be fatalistic. That's not what I'm here for. But that's the truth. He trusts this God, his God, so much that God's going to either rescue him or he's going to deliver him by allowing him to die. But even death, as you know, is controlled by God and only will come about if God so directs it. Amen? So why rejoice? Why would Habakkuk, why should you, why should I rejoice? Why? Because God is Good. Because God is wise. Because God is in control. And God knows what he is doing. Two practical reminders that I think will be really relevant for us today before we close. One, by definition, walking by faith is harder than walking by sight. 
Recall that Habakkuk chapter 2 presents us with, if you, if you go back and you want to read that, I, I read it, so I'm, I feel like I'm talking to you like you read it already, but, but if you go back to chapter 2, there are, there are lessons that he presents us about how not to live by faith. The proud person searches for satisfaction, security, accomplishment, and honor. And all of us desire these things in some way, shape, or form. And the natural response to these desires is to seek them directly, to try to satisfy ourselves, to try to establish our own security, to try to accomplish great things for God, to aim to bring honor to ourselves and all the while diminishing God and His glory. The natural response is the easy response, oftentimes, almost always. But to the one who lives by faith, and in fact Habakkuk is the one who said that Paul quotes in Romans that the just will live by faith. He says, the one who lives by faith, God God says, don't pursue these directly. You will not find them this way. I know that's the natural, easy thing to do. But I tell you, trust in me, delight in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart. You will find true satisfaction, true security, true accomplishment, and true honor in me alone. So you say living by faith is hard. It's no surprise. Walking by sight is easy. Walking by faith is hard. Otherwise, he wouldn't be walking by faith. Secondly, living by faith means, and this is really important, and don't miss everything behind this and the nuance here. Living by faith means loving God instead of loving God's gifts. Habakkuk sees all of God's, if you will, gifts disappear. Will he love and trust God? Will you love and trust God when the gifts evaporate or disappear or aren't there? Think about a parent, right? As parents, and many parents, we love to lavish gifts on our our children. And we all have our own philosophies on that. God help us leave it where it is, right? The child says, I love you, Dad. I love you so much. You're my favorite dad in the whole wide world because every other day you buy me a new car. You know, whatever it is. But isn't the child's reaction to the ending of those gifts the real test of his love? Isn't it? How easy it is for us to act that way to God. To love his gifts, to delight in his gifts, and then to become angry when those gifts disappear or when we don't get them on our terms, which means in our time and in the place we want them. It's a sign of seeking and wanting only God's hand and not his heart. This is a there's a great deal of difference between I love what you do for me and I love you. It's huge. Living by faith means loving God himself. We indeed, and we must be thankful 
for his gifts, but, but God, our elation, our jubilation is in God. He is our portion, he's our treasure, and nothing we desire compares to him. We used to sing a song or a chorus, we used to sing uh, years ago, and even now we can sing, right? Listen, from chapter 1 in Habakkuk all the way to chapter 3 where our text is, nothing changed. Everything around him was the same. And nothing, if you might feel like, God, I'm waiting on you, I'm patient, nothing's changing. Look at our society, it's in a downward spiral, the world's on fire, there's sin, there's immorality, there's craziness, what's right is wrong, what should be upside down is right, what's up, what should be right is upside down. It's all messed up, it's all happening. And listen, we still love God. Nothing, nothing changed, right? Nothing's changing. It feels like it's staying the same. And when you go through that and you're wondering and you're asking God, God, why? Can you change this? Can you make things change in my world, our world? Make things right. Yeah, be the judge so that things get right, God. And, and things still don't change and things begin to slip away and all the gifts, if you will, are, are, are falling away. Nothing changed from chapter 1 to chapter 3 except except Habakkuk's heart. What are the high places this morning over which God will take you? What are they? What are they right now? Where are you? What high place are you in right now? Whatever your high places might be right now, know this one truth. God has guided you there. And he will enable you to endure... And he will enable you to rejoice. Trust him. Delight in him. And remember, remember this. I don't know where I got this, but remember this. That the more you know the planner, the more you can trust his plans. And in the end, in the end, I promise you, in the end, you will move in your journey with God like Habakkuk did. Who in chapter 1, if you want to check it out and do homework, in chapter 1, he was saying to God, I don't get it and I don't like it, God. All the way to chapter 3, when he could say, I'm at peace. I will rejoice in you, my God. You're my strength. It is well with my soul, as we sang. All because he believed God in between chapter 1 and chapter 3. And God said to him all the while, and this is the word for today, be patient and wait on me no matter the high place. I think you've heard me. I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about in your own life, in your journey and experiences in the past and even now, and what will come. But I think it's really, really, really important that when we're in these moments and we're in these, these trials, these circumstances, that we, we remind ourselves and we just maybe even memorize if you can or print it out and hang it up and just say as Habakkuk did, though the fig tree should not blossom and there should be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive oil should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord 
God is my strength and he has made my feet like the... And I have mountain goat's feet and I will walk in the high places because he takes me there. It is well with my soul. Amen? Amen.